right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I will be as presented by carparts.com, and we thank him for it. Check out that mobile experience, easy to find carparts.com. Dude, I got to tell you, man, today is going to be rich. We're going to go behind the scenes. We're going to talk about cars people never even heard of, cars that people dream of or maybe they've never dreamt of. This is going to be an eye-opening experience. That's right, man. We're going off the reservation. When I, when I mean that is, you know, Will and I, we're, we're pretty much into, you know, all the muscle cars, uh, all the performance cars, supercars, hypercars, uh, everything modern, mm-hmm. everything old. Uh, but... You know, we probably fall in the typical mold. You know, you go to a car event and you see a bunch of first-gen Camaros and you, you're pretty happy with the first couple, three or four. You're like, yeah. And then you see a couple of 57 Chevys and you're like, yeah, those are my rides right there. And you see, you know, a few Camaros <laughs> or, uh, you know, Corvettes over there. And, you know, after about six, eight or 600 of those Corvettes, you kind of go, man, I'm ready for something different, you know? And, and this that's where we're going. We're going somewhere different, you know, because we've seen all the same old cars and today we want to pull out some of the unusual some of the difference uh the different ones you know so we want to look for the wild the weird the wonderful in their own sort of quirky way and get some history some background you think about when car companies would make concept cars a lot of those concept cars man were a real departure from what they were accustomed to doing, you know. And some of the wild and crazy guys, you know, back in the, in, in the you know thirties, forties, fifties, there was a lot more than just the big three. There were several car companies out there taking a shot at the gold, trying to make you know really cool machines that the general public would become fans of. So you got everything from mystery machines and bubble tops and all the weird transformations of cars that you never even heard of, but they definitely have an oh factor today we get the men really behind the those cars being saved um basically restored brought back to life or just stuck someplace where they're gonna be taken care of you know because they are lost gold mines and treasures yeah and if you think about going to any you know car museum uh you want to see the cream of the crop you want to see the unique the different the wild the things you haven't seen over and over and over again uh, and what's really cool a lot of times 
is getting the history because as Willie mentioned, you go back a hundred years and there were hundreds and hundreds of car companies. Now we've whittled down to like maybe a dozen or more. Uh, so right. So our, our selection and the number of, you know, different cars and influences have really just kind of shrank, you know, yeah. down to a, a handful. Uh, but back in the day you had dreamers, you had guys that were trying to be inspirational. You had no idea where the car was going to go a hundred years later, 50 years later. Uh, and there were all these creative folks trying to to put their stamp on the direction of the automobile and what was going to be wow and what was going to be cool and, and what was their dream and vision. Uh, so we've got a couple of folks from Undiscovered Classics. Uh, and, and that's what they do. They go out and they find cars that no one was ever even looking for. Uh, because they don't sort of land on the cover of whatever magazine, you know, car show. They're not the classic, you know, uh, Dukes of Hazard Brothers launching the, you know, the Challenger. They're not, you know, they're not the same old, same old. They're the unique, the buried, yeah. the forgotten. Uh, and these guys are about digging them back out, putting the history together and giving us those lessons. Whether you catch them at Pebble Beach, Amelia Island, uh, Maybe you're lucky to see them at a car event or in a museum. Uh, this is a really kind of cool part of automotive history. Yeah, you know, I, I think I've tried to take you here before. There's a place right down from where I live called Rambler Ranch. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a gold mine of AMCs and Ramblers. And I asked the guy one time, why you collect these ugly cars? I always refer to them as ugly ducklings. He goes, because if I don't, nobody will. They'll be lost. And and he's got one-offs and cars, you know, that were only in concept form. And it, it really is going to be a, a look behind the curtain on the cars that didn't make it but should have, and some of the cars that are completely absurd and what they were thinking. So let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll bring on the guys from Undiscovered Classics talking cars we've never heard of until today. So get your ears set, your mind ready. You're going to learn something. Knowledge is next on the Two Guys Garage podcast with Kevin Bird and Willie B. Oh, man, that's going to be fun. It is the Two Guys Garage Podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I will be as presented by CarParts.com. You got to check him out. Guys, I'm telling you, this is simple, easy. If you know the year, make, and model, then you can get your part dropped right to your door. Right, Bird? Now, man, talk about convenience. Doesn't matter where you are. You got about 15 seconds. You can get your year, make, model in there. You got another 15. You can find your part, hit go, and it's on the way, man. 90-day return, satisfaction guarantee. You can't argue with that. Nope. No, carparts.com. All right, let's bring on Jeffrey. Let's bring on Guy. Let's bring Undiscovered Classics to the forefront because I got to tell you, we've all seen weird cars, all right? We've all seen, you know, cars that surprise us. We're like, well, I didn't know that manufacturer made that. I didn't know, you know, Ford made a Durango, you know? It's weird. I, I didn't know half of these cars exist, but, man, you guys really... Take it to the next level. Jeffrey, we'll start with you. Your car collection is uh, is immense. T- tell us a little bit about that and why these particular cars. Well, what we, um, what we study are handcrafted cars in post-war America. Now, it kind of bleeds through a little bit. Post-war is generally your late 40s through the early 50s. But we go a little beyond that and a little bit earlier, too. And what we're concentrating on is what people were building in a small companies, um, in a small team or independently. And they were inspired by the things around them. They were inspired by the space age. Um, they were inspired by uh, the enthusiastic 
environment post-World War II of uh, we can do anything here in America and we can actually build sports cars. Now, that particular, um, when, when I was uh, 17 years old, we moved to Florida. I already had my first car, which was a 55 Cadillac. But my second car was a 1962 Shark Roadster. And I still have the car to this day, 41 years. And it was all in fiberglass. And it was a concept car. And it was a, a fairly famous one. It was in road and track. And it received um, a number of different, uh, it was on the cover of Mechanics Illustrated too, the coupe version of it. And so I could cut my teeth as a real young guy on Packards and Mustangs and Cadillacs and, you know, not so much the, the, the muscle cars, but more of the bigger luxury cars, but Mustangs too. I've had four or five Mustangs all my life. And we moved to Florida and I found this very strange space age looking thing, which turned out to be a concept car. And that's where things kind of diverged for me. That's where things, if you say, where did it get started? Age 17 and I'm age 59 now. Um, there was a big break in between kind of the beginnings of that in the last 15 years called life. And about 15 years ago, I hooked up with an old friend uh, who since passed away, but we kind of went back in the direction of handcrafted cars. And handcrafted cars are what they are. What can Jeff do? What can Kevin do? What can Willie do on his own or in teams and building something? Um, I celebrate when I do something like load the dishes. These guys were designing and building things from scratch, even bodies. Loading the dishes is, is is a good is a reachable goal. You need reachable goals to make the big goals happen as well. So that's all right, man. We're okay with loading the dishwasher. <laughs> Sounds like a good Wednesday, <laughs> guy. How did you get plugged into the mechanism uh, or the equation? What brought you to the table? Um, I grew up in the UK. My daily driver was a car called a TBR, which probably many Americans don't know what that is. It's a fiberglass production car, mostly made in the 1970s, powered by either a Ford V6 or a straight six Triumph uh, engine. And about 24 years ago, when I graduated uh, from the University of Illinois and got sort of a family going, I was presented with an offer to buy the rarest production TVR, which 24 years later, we just finished the restoration. That car has a ex-Trans Am race series, Holman and Moody Boss 302. And the car was the fastest TVR for many years until the early 2000s in terms of production TVRs. Now, bringing myself into the American environment, um, I don't have armfuls of money but I do seem to have a good eye for what I consider attractive looking cars. And I was, you know, again, I was driving up to Road America as a spectator in around 2000. Came across a car with a fiberglass body on a 49 Ford chassis. And uh, I actually passed it up because I thought it was a Devon and didn't realize what it was. Transla translated. And about three weeks later, I've learned it was called a Byers, B-Y-E-R-S, SR100, uh, one of the more attractive fiberglass bodies of the era and was not my car, but a car was a road and track cover car in February 1957. And in that article, John Bond, the primary editor of Road and Track, asked the question, is this the most beautiful sports car? at that time. So very attractive car, I have it to this day. 
Jeff found out that I owned one, gave me a call out of the blue, probably around 2007. And we've kicked off several adventures together since then. What is the car again? I want to try to look it up if it's this, and see if it's that glorious as you describe. A 19 what? Okay, 1956 Byers, B-Y-E-R-S, 100. And you should see, by and large, a blue car with silver a silver stripe, and that's the one I own. Yeah, these are uh, yeah really beautiful car. Anyway, it's not looking online right now. I don't know, maybe a mix between not quite as bulbous as a you know a the Carroll Shelby kind of Cobra mixed with maybe a TR6, a Triumph, you know, a Roadster, yeah. really beautiful looking car where you could see if that had the right backing, that could be just as cool as any other Roadster of that time, right? Yeah, it, it's a slab-sided car similar to the ACAs. It's longer than the lines than a Cobra, probably more like a 1954 Ferrari in the rear treatment. That's interesting, man. Yeah, very nice looking car. When you think about uh, the wild and the weird, I wouldn't say it follows into either one of those categories. It's quite a quite a snazzy, kind of sexy looking ride. And you picked that up a long time ago, but it got you into these unique sort of lost vehicles. Is that, that was your kind of entry point, your hook? Yes, I mean, it, it ended up going to the Amelia Island Concorde in 2000. And ten, which and it won an award there, and I, I'll just give you one other car example. I don't want to take all the time, but I again, Jay, Jeff turned me on to a car up in Oregon that was just in a sorry condition, and it was really it was almost the value of the body. So I agreed to buy this car. We didn't know really that much about it, but it had a hood scoop at the front, and then an additional hood scoop. So we quickly identified the car was built by the technical editor of Motor Trend magazine in 1954. He was a Rolls-Royce mechanic and owned a Rolls-Royce service shop in the LA uh, area. Built this car, relatively high standard, powered by a flathead Ford. Um, he, he died actually after he'd only done 83 <laughs> miles on the car. I'm not sure if that says something. But it, it was uh, the interior of the car was put in by George Barris, who was the design of the original Batmobile. When he was sold to the second owner, Chuck Glover, who is still alive at 97, uh, Wally Parks, the founder of the NHRA, sent him a handwritten note, which fortunately for me I have a copy of, and then a very a famous in-period photographer, Bob DeLivo, had taken photographs of the car. And it was the only car other than the Chis Italia that was in the, show, um, the uh, forecourt of the Peterson or Trend Publications building. So all of that came by taking the gamble that it might be the right car to buy. And I paid very little for it and have put a reasonable amount of money in it. But the car is a, um, the design inspiration for that car is a BMW Mileg Migle Bugle Folte, 1937. Did a couple of uh, rebodies on it through 39. Bugle Folte in German is a trouser crease. And the Victress, which the car I'm talking about, has that same trouser crease 
looks a little bit like an XK120 from the side view. But the point I'm getting at, Kevin, you've already raised it. These are not weird cars. These were mainstream, handcrafted to a high-level car by competent people and then totally forgotten. Now, as far as the, the cars that you're in, uh, into, you know, the ones that you go try to find and search and, and you know, put your heart, your blood, sweat, tears in, uh, probably a lot of money in to, to restore. Um, you know, where do you guys draw your own personal line as to that's too popular, that's too mainstream? Do you have any kind of, you know, rules or do you just kind of fall in love with something? Uh, but do you, do you ever fall in love with a car and go, well, that had 5,000, so that's too many. So I'm going to unfall in love with that. You know, like, <laughs> like what, what, keeps you in bounds to you know the undiscovered classics uh, do you have to discover yourself for the first time and fall in love or you know yes I'll, I'll just answer that quickly i buy cars that i like cosmetically that won't cost an unbelievable amount to restore and most of these american specials used pretty standard drivetrains you know they were put together with stick welding, chassis were shortened and narrowed. So technologically, they're relatively easy to restore and therefore they're somewhat affordable. I think if I, I, I have tried and uh, lost a kind of lost a bidding war to buy an aluminum bodied car. It's not that it's out of my the realm to do that. And I already was going to commit a lot more money than I was used to committing to restoring this particular car. Uh, personal drivers, I think a, a, a Porsche with air conditioning is a great idea. Hey, hey Jeffrey, I, I got an idea, man, because your collection is so mass. Uh, you guys keep referring to these cars as specials and the fact that they're handcrafted in fiberglass, which was post-war era. That was kind of a new material to build cars out of. Uh, and, you know, the process wasn't that refined, but it allowed people to get away from the, the big mass-produced stamp steel-type stuff. Um what is, in your opinion, is that why they call those cars specials and coming out of that post-war era? Um, is it tough to find these cars nowadays that have relatively low production numbers? Like, where do you guys get clued up as to where these cars are at? I'm going to answer that second, if that's okay. Let me answer something else sure. first. Um, to um, Let's see, to Kevin's question. I, ha I may have 80 cars now. I had 120. I've been searching for no cars. In fact, Guy will confirm this. I actually, I got a first car, so I don't need more cars. I got enough stuff to do in my life. I've been searching for stories, these untold stories where we, we find a car. We don't know what it is. We, we track it down. Um, there's a number of examples on Hemmings right now. If you go car after car that I work with the Hemmings crew on, where we post and we circulate, and we find out what it is. Guy owns one of them right now. It turns out it's a 1966 Canera. When I got it, I traded another car for it, very little money. It turns out to be the very first wedge car, you know, the TR7 kind of things from the 70s. This was built in 66. And we've confirmed it with other historians and writers that unless, Guy, you tell me differently, with perfect certainty, there is no other car earlier that's a wedge car of any significance prior to this movement of wedge cars in the 60s and 70s. And that will be debuting. It was really ready for the garbage heap when I traded it and got it. 
um, Guy and I did some swapping, and he owns it now. But that'll be debuting at Amelia Island in, what, eight months, I think. So you got the first inspiration for a, a number of cars that followed on years years later. Well, well the, car guy was, the car guy was talking about, the aluminum car guy, was, that was the bear cage, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, the bear cage, he just didn't mention what it was. That's Cheetah number one from Don Edmonds and Bill Thomas, who were both friends of mine. I don't chase cars, guys. I don't care about chasing cars. I have to chase cars because what am I chasing? Stories. And that's, that is central to what I can tell your audience that's been fun for me. Now, the stories have resulted in a ton of cars that are my responsibility to write about and circulate and build cases like Guy, who is able to, along with me, financially restore the cars and show a business case on why. But it's much. It's really not a story about cars. It's really a story about the stories of the guys who built these cars, and then I go out and find them. <laughs> now that path, as long as you don't have dollar bills as eyeballs, the path of stories is untrodden. If you're looking for the uh, the Maserati and the Duesenberg and all that stuff, everyone always flocks down the same thing. Um, I chose to go into teaching. The guy was a teacher. You know, I made my choice that I wasn't going to be wealthy a long time ago. Um, so I don't have eyeballs full of dollar bills. I mean, I could use money, but, uh, and it's gotten me in trouble more than once. Um, so I chase stories and the stories are remarkable. So going back to what guy was talking about, Don Edmonds and Bill Thomas worked for Bill Strop in the fifties. They designed and built a car that they liked so much that they didn't finish it. And they left and started their own company called Cheetah. That bear cage aluminum car is what I found 10, 15 years ago. It's since it's still here with me, but it's in another hands. We've sold it since then. So the, the things we find are not interesting. The things we find are, are famous beyond what you believe. In fact, they are really the inspiration, like I think Kevin was saying for what came later. Um, and, and, often by the same guys. Uh, Robert Cumberford, a very famous designer, is a, a friend of ours. Stan Moth, who did the Cyclops in the 50s. Uh, the folks at the Peterson Museum, Ken Gross, who was a noted author and uh, car show exhibitionist and you know, across the... I mean, we know all the people, not because Guy and I are the, the best uh, anything we do. We're, we're revising, revising the stories that no one's heard in 60 years. That's what makes it fun. God, you know, I, I actually to say, I hope I don't find another car. I have way too many as it is. We tell ourselves that too, because we're car nuts in our own personal ways. And, um, Man, do they get us in trouble because we just go down that little spiral. <laughs> oh, yeah, all too deep. And hey, Jeffrey, I want you, I want you to think about it, the biggest, the, the car that, in your opinion, is your biggest vector towards something down the line. Like, what car do you own now that you think led to um, a, a bigger mass production or ideas or concepts? Um, you know, years down the road. So think about that. Wrap your head around it. When we come back. More of the guys from Undiscovered Classics on the Two Guys Garage podcast back after the break. It is the Two Guys Garage podcast. He is Kevin Bird. I am Willie P. It's presented by CarParts.com. We have our friends from Undiscovered Classic, Jeff and Guy on. And really, these guys, I imagine, could go for hours on some of these classics and some of these cool cars. Jeffrey, you were just talking about how you like to to find the stories, but that's had to lead to some incredible cars, restorations, and stories of your own. So do you have a car in mind that you think changed engineering or changed how people applied engineering in the automobile? 
We have remarkable examples of what an individual can accomplish in America that um, in design, in engineering, in build, the we can do spirit. That's actually far more important to me uh, to show who we are, where we've come from, and to inspire the current generation. These were guys who said, we had, I have a dream. And they started with chalk on a concrete floor time and time and time and time again. <laughs> and they built things that were beautiful that we're finding. And I have a whole thing called fiberglass farms looks like it's full of junk cars. Virtually every car that's out there could go to Pebble Beach or Amelia Island and without exaggeration. And well, we don't believe you. Well, take a, I'll show you pictures left and right that we do that um, time and time again. Um, yes, let, me, let me just add something because uh, that's a really good question, Willie. So back in the early 50s, there was a guy called Walt Warren, who was the, and Jeff, if I'm slightly off, the editor for Road and Track. He wrote an editorial saying that these cottage industry efforts do in fact percolate up and affect what's going on in Detroit. And in a sense, if you're looking down from Detroit, here was an opportunity to see rapid turnover and development of individual designers that pieces, either angles, curves, design construction technology, yes, that did indeed influence the overall manufacture of cars in the big three in the 1950s. To Guy's point about that, Walt Warren, Motor Trend, not Road and Track. November 1951, he wrote this half-page thing introducing the birth of fiberglass cars in America, a car called the Lancer, a glass bar, and something called the Wasp and Scorpion. And he talked about how, and this is November 51, what Guy was talking about, uh, Walt was talking about how people were coming from Detroit and stealing the designs. Or, you know, stealing the designs, that's too negative. They were really being inspired by the designs. They weren't stealing them. The guys in California would show them. And there are articles in the 50s that show where a lot of the article things came from, where the designs came from. And then, in fact, if you think of a 1958 Edsel, a 1959 Cadillac, a 1960 Plymouth Fury, they were building better custom cars in America than guys in California were building custom cars. So Detroit took over. Jeff, what was the connection with fiberglass specialty car in the Corvette? When Walt wrote that article in November 51, there were already those cars being debuted, fiberglass cars, in in um, Los Angeles. That's what the significance was. And the design also, the composite, the material. But um, these guys who were building them, a guy named Eric Irwin and Bill Tritt, both became consultants to uh, Harley Earl for helping produce and understand fiberglass because fiberglass, how many, how many bodies can you stamp out of metal in a day? Well, whole bunch. You don't stamp anything on fiberglass. So you actually, when the Corvette was made in the 53, you had to have four or five different companies producing bodies. And they were trying to understand companies like Lund Laminates and Ashtabula Plastics, I think. Uh, they had to employ four or five companies to produce these 1953 Corvettes, which, by the way, if you talk to Corvette guys, were horribly made. And that's just because they weren't familiar with fiberglass. So that's our early fiberglass pioneers were technically helping trying to produce a better fiberglass car in both the Corvette and the Kaiser Darren. But those are really low numbers, you know, 53 to 55. Um, 
one, one last thing about research and history, the guy we're talking about, Walt Warren in November 51, was a friend of mine. And I tracked him down and he was still alive just a few years ago. And we did another interview, which I recorded with Walt, talking about that very thing, about the impact of these early guys. So these guys have lived a long life. And I went out and my job was to interview them, hence that responsibility I was telling you guys about. So. You know, I think one of the best uh, car museums uh, I went to, uh, the gentleman that was, you know, walking us through a little uh, tour down here in Detroit at one of the early Ford factories, uh, he brought stories behind everything. So it wasn't a series of facts like here's a 31, here's a 32, here's a whatever. But he brought stories and, and, and context and how this really influenced how things developed and you know why this really became popular and why we struggled with this. And the stories I thought behind that discussion were more fascinating than the actual vehicles I was looking at. And Jeff, I think that's kind of where you fall is you're, you're the historian here and you're chasing down the history, the stories. And I imagine uh, if anyone could be around you while looking at one of these older vehicles, it's got to be an amazing uh, sort of experience to get right that that history and the story behind what you're staring at. Um, and I got a question for both you guys. So, uh, Guy, you'd mentioned that you know you'd picked up several of your cars uh, because you could afford them because they weren't the Ferraris, you know, the old Ferraris and stuff that are you know multi millions of dollars, and you could restore something and, and it could be yours and it could be unique. What what kind of sort of feedback do you get when you go to a, a car event and Amelia? Or, or Pebble Beach, because you're bringing something that doesn't fall into that Bugatti, that Duesenberg, the you know the old Alfa Romero, or or even the Ferrari category. So, what kind of response do you get? Do you get that level of respect that you think you should? Because you're bringing something that no one else has, which is kind of cool in its own right. You're not doing the same old, same old, right? If the glass is half full, uh, I've had somebody come up to me. Uh, I, I showed my buyer's car the Saturday night. A car show at Road America during the big vintage races in the summer. Guy comes up and said, I've been a car guy all my life. I've studied specialty cars and race cars. I've never heard of this car. It's so beautiful. How can I possibly have missed this? Now, the flip side on the glass being half empty, uh, these were composite bodies, and I've got a whole story I can tell you about Composite still goes into race cars and high-production performance cars today. Somewhere in the middle, somebody decided to make kit cars. So everything associated with fiberglass must be absolute crap. Um, <laughs> that's obviously not true, but there are people at the higher end of the show circuit that haven't bothered to ask the question about whether or not was there something going on in the early 50s, was fiberglass the space age material of its day? You know, that kit car issue has been a bit of a burden. But I would say the middle ground response is a eight out of 10 on the positive scale. Hey, so, Guy, I got to ask, when you see those those old Fieros that are transformed with those kits into Lamborghinis or Ferraris, yes. does it make you absolutely sick? Uh, Do you get a little... Sick to the stomach when you see those? I can't. I, I can't. It would require a major sea change, right, to educate people that think they cool. Oh, well, I, I, I'll take that on. I mean, that's just another group of car guys that love their cars. Why would I ever yeah. think anything other yeah. than that? I mean, 
the, the problem with that is my, I helped form some of the groups of the cars of the 60s, uh, a group called Fiber Classics and others that are that appreciate those kits. And I've always thought, well, you know, we're all car guys, right? We're, we're stronger together than we are apart. Why would I ever want to disrespect someone's work? Because there's a lot of cars from 30s, 40s, and 50s that I don't think a lot of. <laughs> and there's a lot of cars that I study that I don't think a lot of. And so why not celebrate the best of everything um, from all areas and try to be all inclusive. Jeffrey, what what is it? Then tell me what you think is the best from that era. What's the best undiscovered classic from the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s uh, right at the top of your head? Yeah, that's going to be real hard. All I can tell you are the things that people are not aware of that would be the best. And that is, we think of custom cars starting in the 1950s. They actually started just before World War I. I'm sorry, World War II, forgive me. Um, and then they really blossomed when cars became more of an envelope body in the post-war 47, 48, 49. <clears throat> and that whole, that was a five-year project for me, searching down all the lost custom car literature because custom cars in America <clears throat> came at, you know, were blossoming at the same time the sports cars were. And so there's all of this history we talk about starting in the 50s. It really started in the in the 40s. And so that's something to me, it's undiscovered that people can start looking for. And that, that story is untold and it's amazing. And we tell part of that story. Um, there's cars that are, there's a car called the Le Mans Coupe designed by a man named Southern McMinn. And it was a car um, that was probably one of the more famous cars done in the 50s. Um, and there are a few examples left and none, one or two, I guess, being restored right now. But um that's a remarkable car with fantastic pedigree that no one's seen on the road since the late fifties. It looks like a 69 Corvette, but it was done in 57, 58. And it was done by very prominent designers and builders back then. Um, what what is that it, car called again? It's called the 1958 Le Mans coupe. You can look it up um, online and see it very, I mean, way different than anything else you'll see from the fifties. Um, but my interest goes back to the thirties, what they were building streamliners like uh, Damaxian and other teardrop cars like that. And people were hand building them. You know, I, I celebrate undiscovered classics is about celebrating the individual and small group, small company. Um, I mean, we, we all should be impressed by everything that the, comes out of Detroit because they have billions of dollars in unending resources and talent. But when Guy and Jeff and Kevin and Willie build something and it's remarkable, isn't that the pinnacle of the hobby when someone unpredictable builds something that's amazing? Uh, and that to me is the unsung, they're unsung heroes. They should, it's the best story of cars out there. The guy who, the little engine that could, you know? Well, I'm sure we got, you know, a lot of listeners that are, are maybe in the same category. They're, they're just, you know, they love cars, but all the ones that they see over and over and over again, they want something unique. They want something special. They want something that's theirs and they can take it somewhere and, you know, hey, that's the guy that has that, you know, that thing that went off. But I've never seen one before. What would you give them for advice? Uh, how would you how would you get started? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, guy, I think a lot of the powertrains are, are, are a little bit more uh, run of the mill. So it's not like you're, you know, you're chasing maybe the most uh, difficult powertrain bits. Probably a lot of the things are fabricated. Um, so I could kind of, you know, imagine in my head about the you know the challenge but i'm sure there's still so many challenges that i'm not even thinking about so what how does somebody go about this well on the logistics and the practical side jeff i'm just going to hand it over to you in a second what what the buyer of these kind of cars 
would be looking for is the same kind of feeling and satisfaction if you go to northern Scotland and you find that small distillery that makes your scotch with a handwritten label and they're expensive and they're wonderful and they are collectible. I think that's the mindset that applies to the kind of car or the motivation to buy the kind of car that we've been talking about. But Jeff, in terms of the advice to somebody that's interested in getting into these kind of vehicles, what what would you say? Run, <laughs> run away. Hmm. Yeah, um, don't. <laughs> I don't think anyone. I don't think. No, not at all. I, I just. I was just trying to think. I don't think anyone wants to get into these vehicles. Um, I think it happens differently. Uh, for me. In my 20s, I had already worked for a museum and car guys, and I had my first car when I was 14 years old and my second one when I was 16 and the shark by the time I was 17, and I was restoring them all, and I wasn't that actually gifted mechanically, and I was still restoring. First of all, they're very easy to restore in many ways, and they can, can be compared, they can begin daunting in other ways. So I ended up liking these cars because I already knew the Cadillac and the Mopar and the Chrysler and the Muscle. I mean, everything. I mean, I've gone through enough. And after 10 years, by my late 20s, I was tired of stories I'd and cars I'd seen, and I wasn't seeing anything new. I took a break from cars from eight, late 20s through late 40s. And when I discovered this, it was because I found the hardtop version after 25 years of searching of my shark that I had for 40 years, or now for 40 years. So I ended up and, and many of the people that I talk to that are coming in and, and joining us for the first time with cars, they end up, they said, I, I just, I love cars, but I've been bored for 20 years until I saw your site. We have a website. You can learn all about the stuff for free, you know, Undiscovered Classics. But so it's advice. It's not so much advice. They show up and they say, help me understand what I need to do because I want to feel enthusiastic again. That's virtually everyone I talk to. Jeff, you ju you just said something uh, a little contradictory because you said after 20-something years of searching, and earlier you said you never searched for them. So at least there was one. At least there was one car. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that. Um, I had my shark had my shark convertible forever. I gave up looking for years and years. And, and uh, yeah, it showed up on eBay, and a friend, a friend called me up, and he said, Hey, there's one of those sharks that you have. I had two sharks at the time and uh, two convertibles. And he says, one of those on eBay. And I'm like, you're kidding me. They built six. I knew the history. I knew the families. Where was this one? It's been hiding in a barn forever. So I wasn't searching, but I, I wasn't, you know, I still had my sharks, the, the convertibles. <laughs> yeah. It's always good finding a hardtop. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was not just a hardtop. This was a whole different car, the famous one. And then that led me to ask, well, where did fiberglass start in America? And what I found, it was my background is um, PhD in industrial organizational psychology. I bring to this the same level of research I would expect from my discipline. So where's the history on fiberglass cars in America? Well, it doesn't exist. <laughs> go, go find a book on it. Well, that's what makes it so challenging is there's just not a wealth of knowledge about any of these cars. And I can imagine that is what's probably one of the most difficult, but also maybe the hook that grabs you because you're you're searching, you're researching, you're, you're getting excited to, to learn more, oh, what yeah. you discover along the way. 
and share that too. It's because a lot of people find rare things and then they covet and hide them. Our job as a teacher, guy is a teacher at different times of his life as well, is to share knowledge. And so how do you build the infrastructure to share that as well? Go ahead, Guy. I'm just done. Yeah, I think we're getting close to the end now. It's a couple of strong points. The, the issue of knowledge. Uh, Jeff has probably put in about 15,000 hours of work over the last 15 years, plus created a huge library. The, all these individual cottage industry specialty cars were lost because there was no place to hang them in the closet. There was no rack to hang them on, like the Christmas tree. So there is a knowledge base now, Kevin, that I think Jeff has created in, the, in Jeff's website, Undiscovered Classic, Classics, is the place to go to look at that kind of structure. Uh, the other thing to finish on is how many of these cars are we actually talking about? That's and, true. Yeah. You know, we're, we're thinking that overall, for all makes, there were about 1,000 ever produced, of which, let's say there are 500 that have actually survived, and half of those are capable of or have actually been restored. So you're looking for a, lot, a small, tiny market of cars for a very large audience which makes them rare which presumably has an impact on future value well that's what makes it so unique and i think fascinating so you guys got to check out undiscoveredclassics.com i mean it is really cool and really fun uh and and these guys are, they're the teachers Right. So if you want some more information about this really important era, I think, in, in automotive history, go check it out. It's cool, man. And uh, who knows? Maybe you're maybe you're going to get hooked. Maybe you're one of those guys that uh, you're all in. And that's the path you want to go on. The discovery, the finding, you know, digging this stuff out and helping to, you know, maybe pull together some of that history for the, the next generation. Maybe you're that guy at the next Pebble Beach with something that a lot of these guys have never seen before. Pretty cool. Yeah, man. It's definitely cool when you think of the rarity and the fact that there's a car nobody's ever seen. Everybody sees the same, you know, 10, 12, 15 cars at a car show. These are things that everybody turns around and says, what on earth is that? Um, so it really is unique, different, and very, very, very cool for, for sure. Yeah, Willie and I will spend forever and a day trying to make something that everybody's seen before look different instead of just going out and getting something that is different, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we're just coming at it from a different angle, but uh, can yeah, man. certainly Amen. appreciate where you guys are coming from. And man, I want to thank you for being on the show today. That was really cool. Yeah, it's undiscoveredclassics.com. Is, is that where people can find you? Yeah, yes, absolutely undiscoveredclassics.com you guys hey thanks so much for your time uh looking forward to the time when we can talk again because i imagine we can have some lengthy conversations man that's all good stuff hey and don't forget about our show every weekend on the motor trend network check your local listings also now available to streaming on demand thanks to our guests guy and jeffrey and undiscovered classics my man kevin bird i'm willie b your producer scoop and executive producer bob ecker yeah, and don't forget to check out our website, too, twoguysgarage.com. And share your thoughts with us. We're on social, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Guys Garage. Now, this Two Guys Garage podcast, it's copyright 2021, Britain Productions Incorporated, all rights reserved. All right, Bird, what's the rarest car you've ever had? The rarest car? Yeah. Man, I am not good at this game. Have you ever <laughs> had something rare? I am not good. 
No, nothing rare. I am not cool enough, man. Yeah, not like that rare. You're buying the Johnny Walker. You need to go further north. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. I need a bigger wallet. I need more time. <laughs> I get scared yeah, off. I get scared <laughs> off too easy. All right, hit me up, Willie. What's your what's your most rare bird? Um, I've, I've got that fifty-eight and a half Dodge Custom Royal D five hundred. That's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, Hey, you're going there. Yeah, that's a great one. 68 four-speed uh, Dodge Charger RT that's pretty rare just because the color and combo it is, it is. NASCAR package on it. So a couple of those, but, man, nothing like, they, like they've like they got. It's amazing. I want to tour that dude's 80-car museum <laughs> or field or whatever it was. Well, you, uh, get a kick, you get a kick out of some of them if you guys want to look. Moon Transporter, probably the most famous one I have. I didn't even talk about that. I have a lot of cars. I have the Wild Cadillac, one of the earliest – custom Cadillacs in the world. There's so many one-off cars that I have. Um, but that's what I do. I search for these things. But if you go in your computer, just type in 1959 Cheetah Transporter or Moon Transporter. It's a, it's a race car hauler. That's what it is. Oh, man. Dude, you got some pretty wild and cool and interesting stuff. I just Googled that. I would drive the heck out of that thing. That is rad. Well, I've, got, I've, got, uh, I've got stuff that's crazy. Look up 1937 Gujan Streamliner. Gujan is spelled G-O-U-G-E-O-N Streamliner. Say it, say it one more time, and then we got to go. Say it one more time. 1937, um, Gujan Streamliner. Oh, wow. That is cool, too, man. I, those aren't the only two <laughs> ones. I have the oldest Packard show car in the world. I've got the only stretched cord Phaeton in the world. They only made 300 Phaetons. I mean, the number of cars that I've been able to find that are one-offs or rare or thought lost is remarkable. I'm not saying that it's remarkable to me. It's kind of like I've been given this mission, but um, the problem I have now is the punishment of success is more work. How the hell do you restore them all? You know, so that's the other thing. Amen to that. Well, you're keeping them from the scrapyard and that's a good start, man. So yeah, man, we'll catch you guys on the next two guys garage podcast. Y'all take care, man. Keep Googling the weird stuff. Stay wild, stay different, man. We'll see you guys next time. Two Guys Garage Podcast is a production of Britain Productions. For more episodes, visit iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.